my. Woo. Wesley, you're a mellow mystic, man. It's been a while since we've been here. I, uh, I haven't been here since the renovation. I'm just thinking the whole time during worship, how often do you have to mow the stage? So I want to introduce you real quick to my, my beautiful, beautiful bride. We met when we were five years old, got married a short time after. It's true. And uh, I always tell people we were so young when we got married when the minister said he may kiss the bride. I was like, gross. But that's not true at all. That's, no, it's not. You did not say this that. This is an important thing to point out, though. She is older than I am, right? Now you say, why would you say such a rude thing? Because recently in a conference, somebody actually came up to Tracy and says, do you like traveling with your dad? So That is true. I've, I've come to accept the fact that we're aging differently. She's aging like wine, and I'm aging like cheese, but at least we pair nicely. So go ahead. You do this stuff so much better than I do. Go for it. I do. I wanted to tell you about a few products that Bill has out in the foyer, but before I do, I just felt like I needed to share. During worship, um, I was just kind of lost in, you know, in a zone. And I, I got this picture, like, Mary, I could see you standing, you know, and just worshiping the Lord, and Jim was worshiping next to you. And then he got down on the ground, and as he put his hands out on the ground, there was, like, lightning bolts and, like, gold just coming out, and it was covering, like, the church and just all the people. And I felt really compelled to, like, tell you today... Um, your pastors, Jim and Mary Baker, care really deeply about what's going on in your life. And I know for a fact, like, they go to the heavenlies, and they're, like, fighting on your behalf, and they're standing in the gap. And I just feel like there's such power that God's releasing in that. And their prayers, their time in the secret place is really impactful for you. So there's things that you can't see with your eyes, but in the spirit, it's really, really powerful. So thank you guys True. for True. loving your congregation. It's really awesome. So I want to tell you real quickly uh, about a couple of resources. One is I just wrote this short little booklet called Freedom from Financial Shame. It's, it's a bathroom reader. You, seriously, you can read this all in one sitting. Before your legs go numb, you'll hit the final chapter. It's that good. <laughs> it is a quick read. However, you guys, you guys are blessed to have Jim, who's like the financial guru when it comes to kingdom finances. So you're really blessed to have like great teaching on that. Honestly, like the best teaching on finances I've ever heard is, yeah. is Jim. But, and I actually refer to him in this with his permission. <laughs> so, but, you know, we have over the years, so many people come to us and they're, you know, they're really depressed and head hung low. And we've had men come to us just crying because they feel so shameful of their financial situation. They're working hard, they're tithing, they're doing all the things that they think they should be doing, right? And they're not doing anything wrong, but they're falling behind. And so I just felt like the lid needed to be lifted off, like the shame needed to be lifted off. And so basically, this is like our low light reel, because as we've had people talk to us about it, they're shocked to hear some of our personal stories. Like, we know what it's like to have to put groceries back on the shelf when you get to the cash register and you're like, well, I can't afford that. 
We know what it's like to have a car repossessed. We know what it's like to sit in the lawyer's office talking about bankruptcy. And But I, along that journey, like God really taught me, like one day he just said, do you trust me? Do you really believe that all things are possible? So we go to church and we sing the songs, you know, all things are possible. But then as we go out and we do life, we're not living like we really think that anything is possible. So it doesn't matter what's in your bank account. Like that doesn't dictate what you're equipped to do. The However much is in there or is not in there doesn't have the power to dictate to you like, what you can or can't do because with God all things really are possible. So there's the freedom from financial shame if you want to read that story. The other one, reckless grace. I don't how many have gotten reckless grace? Few. Okay, cool. This is an awesome book, really powerful that Bill co-wrote with Britt Eaton. She's one of your Ohio locals. She's awesome. And uh I really highly recommend this book because it's super powerful, The, the Weapon of Grace. Um, Bill, he has a cousin who was on his deathbed a few months ago, just very, very sick. We were going to visit him, and we didn't know if we'd get to see him before he passed away. Um, the family was already selling his furniture, uh, getting his house ready to go up on the market. They were making funeral arrangements, and his cousin asked one of the family members, would you please read Reckless Grace to me? He's like, before I die, I want to hear what Bill wrote. So they read the book to him. He started getting better and better and better. And, um, and just a few weeks ago, we were with him in Washington. We got to his home, and he's like, I'm supposed to be dead. And he's like, I apologize. There's like an air mattress on the floor, you know, because he's like, my family sold all my furniture. And his story is that as he heard this, this book, Reckless Grace, he realized he had carried such bitterness and anger and resentment towards somebody his whole life. And as he released that, his body responded. So that's pretty awesome. And uh, there are other, there's a lot of other resources as well that you could check out outside. One last thing I want to tell you about. The Kingmakers Conference in Scotland. Have you mentioned this? No? Okay. Oh, here we go. So, Bill and I were in Scotland uh, twice recently. The first time we went, somebody tapped me on the shoulder as I was looking at a castle on the hill, and I was just pondering, like, the history and all this stuff. Someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, Tracy, and I turned around, and nobody was there. So first time I've heard an audible voice, um, but it didn't feel like something bad. I felt like, okay, Lord, what are you trying to draw my attention to? So the second time we went back, I went and stood in that place, and I was like, Lord, tell me, you know, what it is we're supposed to pay attention to. I'm trying to, like, condense the story. There's more to it. But we ended up staying in a different castle and met the owners. And I just felt such a presence of God on that property, like a really thin veil, like it's a really special place with such a rich spiritual heritage. So we got in touch with the owner. I, I told him, you know, I want to talk to you about what I feel on this property. We went back home and... We got home and somebody, I think Mary, you were the first person, you saw Bill and you told him the Lord gave him this word to you that Bill was a kingmaker. And like 
all that week, there were two more people that came to Bill. We would just be in conversation, and they'd say, um, I see Kingmaker over you. I don't know what this is. I've never seen that before. Well, then, okay, so the owner of the castle, we got in touch. We did a Skype meeting, and as he's sharing about how he and his wife walk the property, this, and this place is built in the 1400s. Mary, Queen of Scots, surrendered her life to the British there. There's tons of history. He's sharing the story about the land, and he said, and lately as we walk the property, we keep getting this word, kingmaker. So we were like, what? <laughs> so that drew our attention here. Long story short, we're going to be doing a kingmaker's conference in this castle in Edinburgh, Scotland, next year, September. And your very own Jim and Mary Baker are going to be there ministering along with Bill. We're going to have worship, teaching. Uh, it's going to be awesome. So if anyone wants info about that, I have flyers that will be out on the back table. All right. Love awesome. you guys. Come hang out. Come hang out with us at a castle in Scotland. Woo! It'll be so much fun. I'm telling you, this place is incredible. Ah, yay. Yay, yay, yay. So much to share, so little time. It's been a while since I've been here. How, how, how many of you have never heard me teach anything before? Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to preach from Genesis to Revelation today. I think I'm joking, but I'm really not. So let's uh, let, me lay a, let me lay a foundation for you, and um, we're going to try to see if we can make it all the way to Revelation. Revelation 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, it'll take us a little while to get there. You realize man's very first conscious experience, very first conscious experience man ever had was a God who adored him. When God goes to create, <clears throat> he first creates light. Light is the means by which you and I can see anything. He doesn't create the sun first. He creates light. In other words, he initiates with, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm revealing myself to you. He initiates with revelation. <clears throat> revelation exists for more than just to make you smart. I have no intention of coming here today and just giving you information or coming here and, and just telling you that wisdom is available to you. It doesn't matter if wisdom is available to you. It matters if you take advantage of what's available to you. I think Solomon proved that it's totally possible to have access to all the wisdom in the world and then ignore it and marry a thousand women that all go to different churches. <laughs> uh, when God creates in Genesis, this is what he does. <clears throat> he big, begins by creating a dead environment. And then he speaks to the substance of the environment that he's just created to produce life that's meant to live and exist and thrive in that environment. So, for example, when he wants to make fish, he speaks to water. And he says this phrase, let the sea bring forth. And everything that's meant to live and move and have its being in that environment comes forth. When he makes plants and animals, he says, let the earth bring forth. He speaks, declares into the environment of earth. And plants and animals come forth and live and move and have their being in that environment. And then God does something most unique. He says this phrase, let us, Genesis 1, let us make man 
in our image. Now, the us is not angels. He's not sitting around with a group of angels going, hey, let's us do something. He's revealing something to us. You're not made in the image and likeness of an angel here. This is God, Father, Spirit, and Son, or an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love that is the very nature of who God is, mirrored within the human family, by the way. God is having an internal dialogue where he says, let us make man in our image. So think of this. This is your origin here. Your origin is not sin, by the way. When you hear the term original sin, you think sin is my origin. Don't think that. Because original righteousness became, came before original sin. So he says, when he wants to make fish, he says, let the sea bring forth. When he makes plants and animals, he says, let the earth bring forth. When he made man, he spoke to the environment of himself. In him, we live and move and have our being. You should just take a deep breath of the affection of God right now. I'm just saying. Man was born in a face-to-face encounter with God. And this is the way God makes man different than any other creation that he ever made. He scoops up mud, dirt, sand from the earth. And he lifts it to his face and he goes, Yahweh, the breath of God, by the way. It's just a sound. Yahweh. God takes the physical, natural dirt of earth and merges it with the breath of his own spirit to create a most unique creature. You're not God and he is not you, but you're more than dirt. Man was created to be a divine convergence zone between heaven and earth. So whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, that it be on earth as it is in heaven, you're actually praying for your own identity to be unclouded by the lies and labels that life has placed upon you so that you can actually see the truth of who the Father has always believed you to be. He made up his mind about you long before you ever had a chance to impress him or disappoint him. And I don't care what you've done in your life, nothing you've done has the power to dictate to him how he can feel about you or whether or not he wants to love you or can love you. The question we all have to answer is this How good is dad? Look on Facebook all day, every day. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, arguing about how good dad is. And I just have this personal conviction that none of us are ever going to get to heaven and go, "Eh, I thought you'd be better. (laughs) He is eternally committed to blowing our minds when it comes to how good he actually is. We're all going to be just in an eternal wow state. God makes man out of an overflow of love. He doesn't make man because he needed anything. God was fully complete. He makes man as an artistic way to artistically express himself, as if a a painter paints a painting. It reveals the art of the painter. God created you as a way of expressing himself. It's amazing how that works. He likes to have conversation and communion with you. He loves to hang out with you. And you know who he likes to hang out with the most? The people that want to hang out with him. (laughs) 
He didn't pick Abraham to hang out with because Abraham was super holy. Abraham had issues. When Abraham went home and told his wife the prophetic word that he had just gotten out in the desert staring at the stars, his wife went, <laughs> we're going to need to help God out on that one. Why don't you go sleep with the maid? And Abraham goes, okay. <clears throat> don't think that God loved hanging out with Abraham because Abraham was such a pure, righteous, holy guy. Abraham got righteous for one reason and one reason alone. He heard what God said, and though it made no sense, he believed it. <laughs> and the fact that he just believed God made it accounted to him for righteousness. Who's God looking for? People who want to hang out with him that believe what he says. He's not real intent on arguing theology with you. <laughs> he makes Adam, and, and out of the overflow of Adam, Eve is created because God looks at man all by himself and said, that's not good. <laughs> then he made Eve and said, very good. <laughs> what a big week for women in ministry, huh? <laughs> Whew. I'll make one statement on this whole thing, right? God didn't consult a man when he decided to be incarnate in Christ. God decided just to have a little meeting with a young girl, gave her a really vague explanation of how all this pregnancy thing was going down, and then God chose to place himself in the womb of a virgin for nine months. So the question of whether or not women are qualified to carry the glory of God has been answered. Well, good. Nobody's running for the door, so we can be friends. Adam and Eve have a conversation with the serpent one day. There's a deceiver in the world. And uh, there's, there's one tree they can't eat from, and God says, that, that, that's the one. Don't eat from that. Everything else, have at it, but this one, just don't eat from that. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil provides an alternate choice, which is really important because love can't ex be experienced without the, the ability to choose it. And God really wants you and I to experience love. He's just a dad who wants to dance with his kids and, and enjoy love. The gospel is not an ultimatum. It's, it's an invitation to a celebration. Always has been. And and there's always an alternative choice, and God stacks the odds in man's favor. He puts like a big neon sign around the one tree they can't eat from. And then one day, the serpent comes to Eve and says, hey, if you eat of this tree, you can be like God. And she's like, whoa, I think I need that. And here's the thing. They were already like God. They were lacking in nothing. And what the serpent did then is the same thing the deceiver does now. And that is tries to get you to believe that you're not something you actually are. Says, hey, 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 you need that. And you go, yes, you're right. I need that. And then he goes, here's what you do. And see, here's, here's the lie. And that is that you can obtain by works what you already possess by grace. When you try to work for what you already have, you've gone blind to what you already have, so you can never work enough will make you so frustrated with a relationship with God because you've essentially gone blind to the truth of who you are. They eat of the tree, and immediately they judge each other and themselves. Judgment comes into the world, and judgment always ends in death and sacrifice. 
And so they judge each other. They suddenly realize, oh my goodness, we're not wearing anything. This is ridiculous. We got we to gotta sew fig leaves together. And then suddenly, voila, the fashion industry is born. And, and here they are, and God shows up and asks two questions. He says, Adam, where are you? Which I love what Chris Valentin says. If God can't find you, you know you're lost. And it's uh, <clears throat> basically asking Adam one of the most important questions that we can ever be asked. And the, the Hebrew word for sin, one of them is the word shatah, which means to lose yourself. In other words, you have no idea who you are, so you're acting on a false identity. And so um, when, he, when he looks at Adam, he says, Adam, where are you? He's essentially revealing to Adam, Adam, you've lost yourself. You're acting like something that you're not. And then he asks a second question. He says, who told you you were naked? And the word naked is really important because it means I'm lacking, but it's my responsibility to fill up where I'm lacking. And so essentially what God is asking them is this question. Who convinced you you were lacking in anything? As Christians, I think we all want to stay free from deception. But understand this, that every deception you ever face will first begin with a perception of lack. You forget that he's your source, your supply. And you forget that in him you're complete and lacking in nothing. Colossians 2, 9, and 10. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwell in a body called Jesus. And in him you have been, past tense, already done, made complete. You're already complete. But you have one journey in this life, and that is to awaken to how complete you already are. It may feel like a process, but the reality is from heaven's perspective, he's taken full responsibility to bring you through the process. That's why the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but the next verse goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's the one doing the work, bringing you through the process and awakening you to this amazing revelation, and that is that you and I get a ringside seat to our own creation. He's still creating. He didn't stop on the sixth day. He just took a break to teach us how to do life as humans, but he's never stopped being the creative creator. And in some of you, you feel like, oh my goodness, I'm still in process. You're, you're in process of awakening to the truth of who God has always believed you to be. So, so we're going to fast forward from Genesis now. We're going to go straight to the cross because we, we just got to speed up. It's a Sunday morning. Some of you come in to punch the clock. I get it. You got a pot roast in. I know. I understand. It's not, a, it's not an unusual night. You know, conference nights, you can preach for two hours. People are like, they don't care. They came, there to, they came there to receive from God, and they don't have anywhere else to be. Sunday mornings, I know. Some of you come in because if you don't, you'll feel guilty. <laughs> Nobody feels guilty for missing a conference. They just feel left out. <laughs> so those of you clock punching this morning. I'm just going to bug you a little bit because um, I'm, I'm going to go a little long. And those of you who want me to keep going longer, I'm not going to go long enough. So I just won't be able to please everybody. The cross becomes the great hinge point in all of human history. Everything that happens before the cross not everything. 1,300 years prior to the cross is what we call Old Covenant. Everything that happens after the cross, since the cross, the resurrection of Christ is called the New Covenant. And the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, 2,000 years after the cross, we're still trying to figure out the ramifications of what this New Covenant means. By the way, the New Covenant's the last covenant. There won't be another. This one's pretty good. You're going to want to stick with this one. All right? <clears throat> 
And I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about a new covenant reformation of the church. What God has done all the way from the beginning of time in, in Genesis. There was a big hiccup in history where man fell. And I know people think all the time, they say to me, Bill, Bill you, you don't understand. We can't identify with Adam because Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. But we are made in the image and likeness of Adam. So that's why we bear the fruit of the fall. And I'll concede to you that that may have been true up until the cross. But Colossians 3 says this. Put off the old man and put on the new man that was made in the image and likeness of the one who created him. So the cross restored you not just to the original intent that was intended for you, but to the glory that was beyond what Adam had ever even experienced. So you get an upgrade beyond where Adam ever even was. Because while Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden, God in the new covenant has chosen to put the garden inside of you and live in that. Which means in the new covenant, you and I have no distance and no separation between us and God. That doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Just saying. No distance, no separation. That phrase goes through my mind about 600 times a day. It just loops. No distance. No separation. It changes how I see me. It changes how I see you. It changes how I see everybody around me. I just look at everybody and go, whoa, no distance, no separation. My goodness. Amazing revelation that God, the God of the universe, has chosen to take up residence in us. My dad took me to the edge of the ocean one day. He had a coffee cup in his hand, and he says, Bill, look at the size of this ocean. Isn't it amazing? And he bends down, and he dips some water out of it in the cup, and he goes, look at, see this? Is this an ocean? And I said, no. No, it's, he says, you're right. An ocean is an ocean because of the size and the greatness. You can't reduce it down and put it all in a coffee cup. It ceases to be an ocean. But God, the God of the universe in whom all things consist, and he holds all things together by the power of his word and the word of his power, God can wrap himself in eight pounds of human flesh, stick himself in a manger, in a stable, in a little town called Bethlehem, and he's still God. So when God says he wants to fill you with his fullness. Your mind may not be able to wrap itself around that, but he is not confused about what that means. In America right now, to make this super practical, in America right now we have tons of division in churches. It's ridiculous. It's like unbelievable. It's just like the body of Christ is so, is so dysfunctionally split up and uh, and yet what I see God doing is, is he's bringing us into a new, a new reformation, a reformation of the body of Christ, a new reformation of the church. And, and so <clears throat> let me just kind of show you what I see and kind of show you where I feel like we're going over the next 10 years. Uh, whenever I travel around the nation, Tracy and I travel all over the place, and, and we pastor full-time also as well down in Florida, and then we travel full-time. Not sure how that works, but it does. And so... Uh, so when we travel around, we, we've run into four different kinds of churches. And the first kind of church that I run into is typically an evangelistic church. And the evangelistic church is always the biggest, the flashiest. They always have the biggest sound system. They always have the biggest crowd because the evangelistic church has one goal. When you say to the pastor, what's the most important thing to you? He says, souls, the lost. Winning the lost. The time is short. What else is there? Well, they're right. And so, uh, okay, um, we'll go with that. The evangelistic uh, uh, church will typically all 
It'd be about the worship, it'd be about like 30 minutes, super emotion-based, tons of just, oh, it's, they, they got it really well planned out. In the sermon, you'll hear all about the pastor's family and nicknames he has for his pets, and maybe one scripture verse or a half a verse, and it's all to get to the final landing place, which is to make a decision for Christ, and they do it all in under 55 minutes, which is probably why they're the biggest churches in the nation. Great churches, by the way. But after 52 weeks in an evangelistic church, you wake up to a realization. I think I just got saved 52 times in the last year. <laughs> I'm missing something. I need to go where there's, ah, good teaching. I need more information. I need teaching. So you go to a teaching church, and a teaching church, man, you get so much information. The teaching pastor does not like to land the plane at the end of the service. As a matter of fact, it's a real downer when the sound guy starts going like this. And teaching pastor goes, oh, man, I guess we got to stop here. We'll pick this up next week and says a half-hearted prayer and lets everybody leave. A teaching church will give you tons of information, but after a year or two in a teaching church, for whatever reason, everybody suddenly feels called to a brand-new ministry called Arguing with Other Christians on Facebook. <laughs> a ministry that nobody is called to, by the way. I think it's fine if you disagree with people. Send them a private message, build some relationship, and gain some understanding as to why they feel or believe or see the way they see. But when it comes to public displays between believers that disagree, please let the world see us at peace. All right? Just saying. After a couple of years in a, in, a, in a teaching church, and the teaching pastor, by the way, the most important thing to the teaching pastor is the word of God, integrity to the scriptures. And after a couple of years in a teaching church, you say to yourself, oh, I'm missing something. What am I missing? Oh, yeah, the presence. So you go to a prophetic church. And in a prophetic church, I believe you are far more likely to be injured in a worship-related accident. <laughs> than in any other kind of church. Getting hit in the head with a flag, not uncommon. Having your eardrums blown out by a shofar. And somewhere, somewhere hanging on the wall, there will be a lion with a crown on it, standing on a beam of light, holding a sword. Promise you. Prophetic church, services can last three hours or more, and here's a common phrase you hear when you ask somebody who goes to a prophetic church, hey, how was service today? This is a common phrase. It was awesome. Nobody even preached. And the evangelists and the teachers are like, that's not even legal. It's not even a church. What is that? You may have 200 people in service one week. Then you may have 20 people in service the next week because some prophet with three first names is speaking eight hours away and everybody got a word from God that they're supposed to go over there and hear him. Real flighty crowd. And the problem after, the most important thing to the prophetic pastor is all about the presence of God. The evangelist is outward focused. The teacher's inward focused. The presence people turn the entire relationship vertical. And that's great until you decide you want to build community, and you look around and you go, hey, how's your week been? And you say to somebody, and six hours later, you're still hearing about the dream they had last night. <laughs> and you're like, I don't ever want to do that again. I know some of you in here are like, I think people love hearing about my dreams. No, no, no. I'll just be the one to break it to you. No. 
So, <laughs> so <laughs> after a while in a presence church, you're like, I need community. And so you end up in a true pastor-led church. And pastor-led churches are typically around 100 to 120 people at the most, because that's about the most that a pastor-led church can actually have, because that pastor has to be in everybody's Kool-Aid. A true pastor-led church, the guy, man, he's like going to father this crowd. He knows everything about everybody. And I know when I met a true pastor, because when he goes out to coffee with me in, in the town that he lives in, it doesn't matter how big or small it is, he knows everybody in that restaurant. None of them go to the church, but he knows everybody. And, uh, and getting into that community is a big deal, because as much as they love Jesus, they hate change, and you represent change until you've been there long enough to where they find that they can trust you, they pull you in, you find the most loyal friends you've ever had in your life, but God help you if you ever try to leave. In a pastor-led church and community, the most important thing is the body of Christ, the care for the body, building up the body in a healthy way. Now, so you may think, okay, well, where's the apostle in all of this? The apostolic grace is the Father's heart to be able to recognize that on a leadership team usually exists an evangelist, a teacher, a prophet, and a pastor. And the apostle, the apostolic Father's heart, can get all of them to work together and play nicely to where they stop being in competition with each other and trying to make the other person just like themselves. So the pastor goes out and gets them, brings them in, the teacher disciples them, connects them with the worshipers who get their vertical relationship going, and the pastoral care folks take care of the needs of the body. Such a beautiful synergy. And see, what God is doing is he's actually putting together churches that are feeding people a balanced buffet so that spiritually we get all the nutrients we need. And the problem, though, and here's where it breaks down, is that people take a look at this and say, okay, I'm made in the image and likeness of a super good God. He is fully in me and everything to me. Why do I need anybody else? Well, God has created us to be one body, but he's, it's like a diamond with a ton of facets, and you represent the facet of that body that creates just another shine, another sparkle, another aspect of the beauty of the nature of who God is. And we're not meant to live alone, isolated unto ourselves. So God will give you a specific focus, and you a specific focus, and you a specific focus, and when you come together, you make one beautiful body. However, a lot of times, this is where people break it down. This is where it gets all muddy. People think, well, i got to find out then which one of these graces I have. And I think more than 90% of you have none of them. What? Yes. The tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes, only one was Levites. The rest of the tribes mowed the lawns and worked in retail and flipped the burgers down at the restaurant and were lawyers and doctors and physicians, all that stuff. The rest of the tribes kind of kept society running and going, inventing things and coming up with ideas. You think just because you became a Christian that now you got to get into some sort of ministry. I think 90% of you are just the saints that are supposed to be equipped. So what does a healthy saint look like? A healthy saint looks like somebody who has an equal value for the lost, for the Word of God, for the presence of the Lord, and for the body of Christ. And as you develop those values within your life, you just kind of go about doing life. Hey, listen, the body of Christ starts becoming healthier and healthier. And pretty soon, churches start loving working together. They start becoming, you come to a church, you get everything you need out of it. It's great for six months. And all of a sudden, you realize you're lacking something. You go and jump to another church. Because very few places serve all four of those things up. But in a new covenant reformation of the church, God is bringing us a new covenant perspective that there's no distance and no separation, which means that we're not allowed to have jealousy and competition. All right? 
So <clears throat> this is where we're going to pick this up here. New covenant reformation of the church. This represents the cross. Old covenant, new covenant. Sorry, guys, somebody had to do it. Right? In an old covenant perspective, everything was distance and separation. In a new covenant perspective, everything is union. No distance, no separation. And when I see from a new covenant perspective, I'm just going to give you just one way that you can begin to really develop an overall health when it comes to being a healthy saint today, right? And, and then we'll finish up by just melting your mind with some beautiful truth from Revelation. <clears throat> this no distance, no separation identity that came to us because of the spirit of adoption is something that we're still getting used to. We're still getting used to being adopted. And it's not just an adoption like an earthly adoption. It's an adoption where you got a blood transfusion. And now the blood of the Son of God that cleanses you from all sin doesn't just flow over you. It flows in through you to affect and impact the world around you. you got more than just adoption papers. you you got a full-on choosing to be His. How did you get into Christ? 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Right? So, so here you are, in Christ, no distance, no separation. It's fine as long as you're on this side of the cross. What happens if I go over here and I decide to study any verses on this side of the cross? For whatever reason, I leave my new covenant lenses right here, and then I step over here, and now I find myself reading good teaching and studying good teaching, but I find myself applying the distance and separation factor all over again, which doesn't belong to you anymore. See, everything on that side of the cross changes everything over here. It doesn't erase it or nullify it. It clarifies it as long as you keep your union lenses on. Right? Right? It's going to help you guys so much in Bible study. So, for example, over here, Jesus teaches things called parables. And these parables are awesome. They're never repeated on that side of the cross, by the way. It's not that they're irrelevant. It's that they take you someplace that now on that side of the cross, in Christ, union clarifies. These parables were actually meant to dismantle all of our concepts of work to try to get close to a God who is desiring to live in us. So basically, God's coming up with rules that we can't do so that we come to the end of ourselves and have to rely on his grace. Give you an example. Parable of the, or the, the story where Jesus comes to the rich young ruler. Not a parable. Actually happened. Jesus comes to this rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler comes to him and says, Hey, what do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus goes, Keep the law, which is not the way you get in. But he knows he's done his best to keep the law. And the guy goes, Hey, I've done that. Check. Got it. Jesus goes, One thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor, and then come follow me. It's not in the law, by the way. Jesus is making up new rules on the spot. He's just writing new laws right there. A rule that he only ever told to one guy. Now think about that. Is that how you get in the kingdom, to get rid of all your stuff? Because if it is, didn't you just disqualify the person that you just gave all your stuff to? Hey, here's my house. Here's my car. Enjoy hell. Is that how? I mean, really. Is that how you get in? No. What is he doing? He's bringing us to the end of ourselves. So we go, oh, man. I guess I'm, I fail. The only way that I can possibly be qualified, I guess, is, is, is you, Jesus. If you don't carry me into this, I got nothing. 
If his grace doesn't save us, all of us are lost. That's the deal. All these parables bring us to the end of ourselves. These parables have layered, layered revelation. And so let me give you a couple of, of ways that you can read this. Uh, the parable of the seed and the sower. One of my favorites. This is a super easy one. So the parable of the seed and the sower is a sower goes forth to sow, and he's got a bunch of seed, and he just throws it everywhere. Terrible skill as a farmer. He just, like, chunks it all over the place, like he's got an unlimited supply or something. <laughs> right? It lands on four different kinds of soil. One out of the four is good. What's, what's the interpretation? Well, keep in mind, Jesus is speaking Old Covenant language to an Old Covenant audience. When it comes to interpretation of the story, he's bringing them to the end of themselves. So he gives them an Old Covenant interpretation that puts it all on them. Think of it like this. Realize, okay, i got to be good soil. I understand that. So I can receive the seed of the word so it can take root and bear fruit. Easy enough. Except now it's all on you. So now you ask the question, am I good enough soil? Am I healthy soil? Did I get the right kind of seed? Do they have more seed than I do? Does that church have better seed? Should I have watered it more? Did I water it well enough? Did I read the Passion Translation? Is that better water than the King James Translation? I'm not 100% sure. What's going on here? Pretty soon you have fear and anxiety, and all this stuff rises up within you. In John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, he's going to give us a reason for why he's talking. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full, complete. In other words, if you hear what he says and joy isn't the automatic internal response, go back and look again. So whenever you interpret a perspective of Jesus' teaching that brings fear and anxiety to you, you may be looking at it through an old covenant lens. So let's look at this from a new covenant lens. Here's the new covenant lens rule. No dis- it's, not, it's not super complicated. No distance, no separation between you and him never will be again. I come over here, I look at the parable. First thing I got to do is find Jesus. Because I'm not defined by the seed or the soil, I'm defined by the sower now. I'm not the dirt anymore. I'm in the sower, and the sower is in me. We are one together. So from that vantage point, when I see myself in the sower, I get a fresh revelation of the story. I get a revelation of who I am and what I have access to in terms of heaven's resources. I get my mission and my commission. Whoa! That's, you feel that? It's called joy. That's what Jesus said we would feel when we get the stories right. Should we do one more? parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. This is a big one. In this story, some wedding invites have gone out. They've gone to 10 virgins. Five of them are administrators. They got their stuff together, and the other five are like artists, musicians. (laughs) Got other things going on, man. We're just like, I don't keep calendars or appointments. I'm just like, it's okay. No worries. Here's your ticket to get in the wedding. You have to have a lamp. It's got to have oil in it. And all of a sudden, here comes the wedding. Time to go. And they all show up to the wedding. Five got their oil. They've had it. It's been ready. Been hermetically sealed, wrapped in Tupperware. I don't know, whatever. They're all hanging out there, waiting to get in the wedding. And here come the artists. They show up, and they don't have any oil in their lamps. And they say to the wise ones, hey, can we borrow some oil? And the wise ones go, no, go get your own, which is super Christian. (laughs) You just feel that sacrificial heart just when you look at the story you you ask yourself this question which one of the virgins am i 
I want to be the wise one. I want to have my oil ready. And I understand, base level revelation, you can't borrow somebody else's transformation, take responsibility for your own spiritual growth. I get that. But here's the problem. Now it's all on you again. Do I have enough oil? Did I get the right oil? Do they have better oil than me? If I eat a Popeye's, will I have less oil than if I eat at Chick-fil-A? Are there, are there flies in my oil? Is my oil more pure than their oil? Somebody trying to steal my oil. I mean, come on. <laughs> How about this? Let me just ask you a simple question. When it comes to the great wedding of the ages, the cosmic wedding of the ages, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bridegroom being joined to his bride, the bride of Christ, are you really just an invited guest to somebody else's wedding? No! Hello, New Covenant Revelation. The wedding is all about you. You feel that? It's called joy. That's what he said we would feel when we get it right. And as per the custom, the bridegroom is bringing you all the oil you will ever need. He's romancing you. Woo! Go through every single one of the parables of Jesus, find Jesus in the parable, and you'll find you. And you know what? There's a bunch of parables where you can't find Jesus anywhere in the story. You know what the revelation is there? That story's not about you anymore. Mm-hmm. I can feel some theologians getting offended right now. I feel you pulling away. It's okay. So I want to show you how, in the last few minutes here, we can explain the entire book of Revelation from a New Covenant perspective. We're going to try to do this in under 10 minutes. Ready? We're going to explain the entire book of Revelation from a New Covenant perspective in under 10 minutes. <clears throat> you know that you can bend time, right? I'm going to take a rabbit trail here for, for a second because I feel like somebody in here is like, Somebody will get something out of what I'm about to say, even if it's only one person. You know that you can bend time. You never have to worry about running out of time. The one who invented time lives in you, and he can make more. Back in 1906, 1927, there was a, an experiment done in science called the, the double slit experiment. Anybody ever heard of this? A couple of people, okay. And they were basically trying to decide in this experiment to determine whether light was a particle or a wave. And what they discovered is, yes, it's actually both. It's a particle that acts like a wave. But here's the unintended consequence of that experiment, is that they discovered that light actually responds to being observed. In other words, it acts differently if somebody's watching it. Mm-hmm. This opened up the field of quantum science. Quantum science, uh, just another way of saying that science is working really hard to try to catch up with what the Bible has always been revealing. So, <clears throat> so here's, here's, uh, here, there's a lot of follow-up experiments, millions and millions of follow-up experiments done. In 1999, there was another experiment done that became known as the quantum eraser. It was a la uh, groundbreaking, but only recently they published papers on this. 1999, they started doing this experiment where they... They shot a single beam of electrons. We talked about this? Okay, yeah. 
single beam of electrons into a crystal and split that beam of electrons into two, each having half the energy of the other. And on this side, it went into a wall where it registers over here. On that side, it went way across the room where it went into a box that had tools of observation in it where it registered over there. When they turned the tools of observation on over there, it changed the beam over here. Here's the problem. This had already hit before that did. Even if it was a nanosecond, this was in the past by the time that was made. Here's what it proved. That in some realm, on some level, which is melting scientists' minds and should probably melt all of ours as well, it is actually possible to make a decision in the present that affects something that's already happened in the past. Uh, so let me, let me just make this super practical to you, okay? The other day, Tracy and I were felt led to give to somebody, to, to, to bless and support somebody and to give some money. She came up with an amount, I came up with an amount, we settled on an amount. We get online, we make the donation, send it off. <clears throat> and that afternoon, a check came in the mail that was unexpected from a church we preached at years, months and months and months ago. They said, hey, as a leadership team, we just sat down. God put you on our heart. We felt like we wanted to bless you. We're sending this check to you. God bless you guys. It was exactly 10 times the amount that we had given that morning. Now, now you could say, okay, well, they're obviously not related because by the time you made the decision that morning to donate that particular amount... In obedience to God, the check was already in the mail. Sure, unless it wasn't. And I started thinking back over times we've had unexpected blessings, and I began to realize I can typically trace an unexpected blessing to a choice of obedience that I made a very short time before, but I never drew the connection because the blessing seemed to already be in root before I made the choice. You know what I can't trace? Unexpected blessings to no decision of obedience at all. Which makes me wonder, if we had sat down and said, eh, no, let's not give, could it be possible that that meeting never happened, God never brought them to us to their mind, they never actually made the decision, the check never actually went in the mail? Because in some realm, your obedience in the present doesn't just affect your future, it can also change your past. That was extra, okay? <clears throat> Hey, listen, you say, I don't know if I can believe that. Then how can you possibly believe that Jesus can forgive sin? Right? <laughs> so, Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. You're going to want to jump there real quick. Here's the key to understanding Revelation. The book is called A Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not a revelation of the last days, the end times, the mark of the beast, the dragon, all that stuff. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of the victory of what Christ accomplished. And when you see the obstacles that Christ faced on our behalf that we are fully, completely unaware of, even have a clue as to what in the world all that stuff means, but when he stands victorious, we should just like pump our fist in the air and applaud and go, wow, I'm with him, all right? Basically, it clarifies which side we ought to be on. So, <clears throat> Revelation of Jesus Christ, the first three chapters of Revelation, God is speaking over some churches that are going to be epicenter of a worldwide revival. When he gets to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'm going to come in, I'm going to beat you up like the rotten sinner that you are because you know you deserve it. No, it's not what he says. He says, I will come in, we're going to break bread, we're going to build relationship because that's his first order of business. So Jesus is standing at the door, and he's knocking. 
Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 says, I turned and I looked in a door standing open in heaven. So you have a tale of two doors here, one on God's end that's open, one on our end that's closed. God has always been after union. If there's any distance or separation, it's in here, right? So, and then suddenly John says, I was in the Spirit, which is interesting because in Revelation 1, he's in the Spirit. Now he's in the Spirit, in the Spirit. It's like inception. How deep does it go, right? Just when you think you've seen the depth of the Spirit, it's like, phew, no, I'm, phew, you know. Cool. So, Revelation chapter 4 now shows God sitting on a throne, surrounded by angels, 24 elders around him, casting crowns. It's clearly a picture of God on the throne. Amazing, amazing picture. Incidentally, when God makes you in his image and likeness, he picks and chooses exactly where he wants to put bits, pieces, and whatnot, and how many pieces he wants to put in there. And I think you and I are living, walking, breathing sermons that are supposed to reflect the nature of his world, his kingdom, and his realm. So, for example, in the throne room of God, there's 24 elders bowing down around the throne, the thrones in the center, angels swirling all over the place. You are basically a type and a shadow, a, a bit of a simulation, so to speak, of a greater spiritual reality. In the natural, you actually can be a picture of a greater spiritual reality if you fully understand what's going on in here. For example, the heart that's in the middle of your chest is surrounded by ribs, bowing down over it. Anybody want to take a guess as to how many ribs you have? 24. I can see some of you going, one, two, three. <laughs> True. Maybe the throne room is a little closer than you thought. Or is him living in you just a metaphor? John 14, 20. In that day you will know I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Is he in you? Yes. Are you in him? Yes. Can you wrap your mind around that? No. So God is clearly sitting on the throne. Now we get to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Revelation 5 verse 1, God is sitting on the throne. He's got a book in his hand. He's holding it up like this. It's closed. It's sealed. And a strong angel, Revelation 5 2, hollers out and says, Who's worthy to open the book and to break the seals of it? And the Bible says nobody could be found worthy. Nobody in heaven or on earth. Nobody. You know what John does? Revelation 5 3, he weeps. 5 3, 5 4. He's weeping. Why is John weeping? Because God's worthy of everything, and John's given his life for this. And now, John is looking at God on the throne, who is apparently holding a book he himself is unworthy to open. We have a theological dilemma here, and John is weeping. One of the best ways to understand Revelation is to understand that God, the cosmic storyteller who told everything and taught everything in parables, Mark says, without a parable he didn't teach, has not stopped teaching in parables in the book of Revelation. Revelation's a bit of a play. It's like a Greek tragedy that becomes a comedy. And what you do in plays and movies is you have the ability to take artistic license, which means you can portray something, you can portray the strongest person as just a little bit weak to give some credence to the story so that you can build something else up. And that's exactly what God's doing here. He's holding a book and it's like, oh no, I can't open this. Who's worthy to open it? John's freaking out. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. You ever take somebody to the movies and they don't get out very often? And in the middle of the movie, it's like the hero is down for the count. You don't think they'll ever rise again, but you've seen the movie and you know it ends on a really happy note and the person you're with is freaking out, making a scene in the theater. 
And you look at him and go, hey, knock it off, man. You're making a scene. Stick with the story. It gets better, I promise. There's an elder here, Revelation 5.5, standing next to John. He smacks him and says, hey, knock it off. Stop weeping. Cut John some slack. He's on the island of Malta. He doesn't get out very often. He, or Patmos or whatever. He, he doesn't get to the movies very often, all right? So I don't understand what's really going on. He's standing there. He's weeping. He's freaking out. The elder says, stop. Stop weeping, okay? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's worthy to open the book. And you see John like, what? wait, what? Lion, tribe, Judah, root. Jesus? And he opens his eyes, looks around to see, looking for a lion, but he sees a lamb. Because what Jesus is, is he is the culmination, the lion and the lamb laying down together. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. And what is God doing in Revelation where he's holding a book he's unworthy to open, and yet Jesus shows up and he's worthy to open the book? He's saying something 2,000 years ago that's more important now than it ever has been. This is God saying, I will not be God without my son. Hey, humanity, heads up. 2,000 years from now, there may be some people that try to tell you that my son was just a good teacher, a prophet, you know, a healer, a historical figure, a spiritual leader. Just don't buy it. He's very God of very God. You know, understand, I love what Michael Culliano says, that Jesus is the Father's only three-point sermon. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And in Revelation 5, oh no, who can open this book that nobody appears unworthy to open? Here comes my son. What does he do? The father does what any father does when he wants to elevate his son in the eyes of everybody else. The father backs up just a little bit to let the son be exalted. And this is the beauty of the relationship between father, spirit, and son in this beautiful book. And now everything that's spoken over the son is going to be a revelation of your inheritance and who you are. All right, in the last couple of minutes today, I want to take you all on a little exercise, right? We're going to do a little bit of an activation, just a massive group activation. When you were born, when you were just a child, you were born with a thing called an imagination. It's amazing. The New Age movements try to steal it. The world's try to steal it. The devil's tried to steal it. But it's actually a gift of God. For it's the limitless canvas upon which a creative God without limits can create infinite possibilities. And today I want you to exercise that imagination just a little bit. We're going to have you close your eyes right where you're sitting. And I want you to picture the throne room of God. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to do this. I'm just going to walk you through it a little bit. And I want you to kind of, in your imagination, in your mind, I want you to look around see the walls that are all around you. Or are they around you? Is it so big you can't even see the walls? If you can see the walls, are they blue? Are they clear? Are they like glass? And how high? Does that go? And look beneath your feet. What are you standing on? Is it gold? Or is it so pure that it's actually clear like diamond? And does it look like it's moving, like there's a river that's flowing beneath your feet or near you? And is the river water, crystal clear like water, or is it, or is it fire? And as you look up to see the source of the river, do you see in front of you the throne? Let yourself see the throne. And maybe the throne is like it's gigantic, like, 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 the, like the, uh, uh, stone, the, the stone sculpture of Abraham Lincoln sitting in the Lincoln Memorial or something much, much bigger and much more grand. And let yourself see the one who is sitting on the throne. 
Maybe like a verse in the New Testament says that he's unapproachable light, so he just looks like light. Or if you can see him or make out his fingers and his feet, is he dressed in the classic stereotypical picture of God dressed in white, totally from head to toe? And look at his face, look into his eyes. Is he old, is he young, or is he timeless? He represents wisdom or childlikeness. And when he looks at you, I pray you see delight. If you're seeing disappointment, change it to delight. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so here's the question I have for you, though. Where are you? If you were to place yourself in the throne room of God, where would you place yourself? Are you standing right before the throne? Or maybe you've heard people say, I'm on my face, face down before the throne of God. I, I, or I'm on my knees and I have my hands raised. Some people uh, may be dancing before the throne as if they are not encumbered by gravity anymore. Some people may say, and I've heard people say, I, I'm looking for somebody that I know in this massive crowd of people. Or I'm looking for somebody to stand next to that's holier than me. Or maybe somebody to stand next to who's, who's not as righteous as me because then I know that I'm okay. And tragically, one time I heard somebody say, I'm standing actually outside. And I got my back against the wall. And to my left, there's an opening. I can see light coming out of it. And I can hear the sound of cheering as in a stadium, a celebration happening. But I really feel unworthy to go in. So I'm just going to stay right here. But where are you? I think where we are in heaven ought to be defined by Jesus, and we get the chance today to believe what he says. So I'm just going to quote to you Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. We were just next door to it just a minute ago, but this is what Jesus says. To him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. According to Jesus, your position in the throne room is still no distance and no separation. That where I am, you may be also. Your posture, your position Biblically speaking, from Jesus himself, is that you are on the throne. I mean, you may have a hard time picturing yourself on the throne, so let's think of what Jesus said. To apprehend, to see, to know the kingdom, you've got to become like a child. And when Jesus was illustrating this, he took a child and he pulled that child up into his arms to literally be sitting on the mercy seat of God. And that child... In that place of sitting on the literal mercy seat of God is not dying in the presence of God. He's being embraced by a loving Father. An incarnate Son who said, I only do what I see the Father do and say what I hear the Father say. And in that moment, he's putting the Father's heart on display to like the innocence of a child, to draw that child up into his arms. Maybe you can't picture yourself sitting on the throne carrying all of the baggage of what you remember in life. So I want you to see yourself as a child again. Let yourself this morning be baptized in innocence. It's called justification. 
to what Christ has done. Innocence is the oil of a heaven that invites you into intimacy with God. Without a revelation of innocence, you'll never let the Father tell you who you really are. So Holy Spirit, right now, I pray for a baptism of innocence to wash over this company of people, this body of believers. God, a fresh revelation of the oil of your innocence. It takes us back to that place of being like a child, fully trusting in the affection of the Father. And as a child, walk up to Dad and let him reach down and wrap his arms around you and lift you onto his lap. And place your head against his chest and heal his heart. Here's a heartbeat. And feel and hear him say over you, my son, I love you. My daughter, you're so beautiful. This is where you belong. It's where you've always belonged. I've never been disappointed in you. Nothing can separate you from my love. And even when you tried not to be my child, I've never stopped being your father. I've always known who you are. And I'm never going to forget. So Lord, I pray right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you administer an innocence to us today that brings us to a revelation of no distance and no separation. No distance. No separation. Open your eyes and look at me. What I'm talking about today is not new revelation. It's not a new doctrine. It's not a new idea. Paul talked about this 2,000 years ago when he said, present tense, right now, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. And then you go on to read the rest in Revelation chapter 5, and you start seeing how heaven and earth, all the angelic hosts and everything that's in the earth, starts making declarations that go like this, to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And you begin to realize they're not just talking about my dad without me. The revelation of who he is becomes a revelation of who I am because I'm made in his image and likeness. And not only that, but the inheritance that belongs to Christ becomes my inheritance as well because I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And so when the whole heaven and whole of earth says to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That is a revelation of heaven's declaration of your present identity right now. That's who you are. And if you dare to believe that, you may think, whoa, if I believe that, it would make me filled with pride. No, it wouldn't. You can't take pride in something you didn't do. And you didn't do that. But when you realize that he's the one that did it because of his exceeding great love for you, the only thing it can fill you with is gratitude. 
And gratitude becomes the most fertile soil of the heart from which a fruitful Christian life springs forward. So now, being seated in heavenly places, go forth and do life and give the grace of God away recklessly and relentlessly because you carry the innocence of heaven. May it affect your eyes, may it affect your ears, may it affect your declarations and speech. And may when people meet you, they actually have an encounter with the presence of God. Even if they don't remember your face or your name, may they walk away from you absolutely fascinated with the lover of their soul, the Lord of our life, and the Father of us all. Father, I pray today that you would continue to minister. No distance, no separation over every person in here. If you're resonating and buzzing with what I'm saying right now, stand to your feet. God, I pray that as people stand to their feet today, that you would wash over them with that oil of innocence, that the fire of your Holy Spirit would ignite something within us, a passion and a love for your affection for us, to give that affection away relentlessly. Thank you, Jesus, that there is no distance and no separation between us and you. Amen. Pastor Jim. Man, oh man. 